Well, good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Matt. I'm one of the leaders here at the Oak Church. Um, and if you've got your Bibles with you today, or you can get it on your phone, or we do have Bibles around the side uh, as well, I would really recommend uh, being in the passage uh, today as we talk about it. We're going to be looking at John chapter 6, verses 16 to 59. We're continuing our series in the Gospel of John. Now, Gospel just means good news. And John was one of the eyewitnesses of Jesus' life. He was one of Jesus' closest friends, one of his disciples. Um, And normally, when I'm preaching, I would break up quite a long passage like this. We would go through it bit by bit. Uh, But for reasons that I'm going to explain in a few minutes... um, I don't think that's something uh, I can really do here today. And so what I'm going to do, first of all, is I'm going to read the whole passage. Um, And the reason why I'm really recommending if you've got a Bible to have it open is because Jesus is wanting to speak to us and communicate to us today something about himself. And so as we're talking about this passage, I'd really encourage you to be looking through and going backwards and forwards and just seeing all the parallels that Jesus is drawing, the ways that he's talking, the things that he says over and over again. Because I think this passage is for you today, this morning. So I'm going to read for us now um, John chapter 6, verses 16. And just, just to remind myself, just to give a little bit of context about what's happened here, Jesus has just preached before thousands of people, and then he has fed them miraculously. With five loaves and two fish, he has fed these thousands and thousands of people. And then he's had to withdraw from them because they were hoping they could make him king by force. So he's had to withdraw to a private place where the other gospels tell us he spent some time in prayer. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake. This is the Sea of Galilee for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you were looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you. And he's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. 
Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling amongst yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them. I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply amongst themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. So... This morning, I'm going to start with a small confession. I spent a very long time trying to work out how to fit this passage into a a neat structure because I'm I'm a bit of a nerdy guy. Some of you will be shocked by that, I'm I'm certain. Um, But that's how my brain works. You kind of break down a big, complicated thing into a few easy little chunks. And in my church tradition that I was raised in, uh, a sermon has three points. It has to have three points. If they begin with the same letter, then you're winning. For some reason, the letter's usually P. Three points starting with P. Very, very important. Um, But there was something here in this passage this morning that stopped me dead every time I tried to do that. Every time I tried to impose some order and structure on the words of Jesus, I found that I was trying to tame them. And I wasn't competent to do that. And I think that's because this passage is exploring the very core of who Jesus is and how people are joined to him. And language somehow breaks down the further you go into that mystery. This morning, the truth is, I can't offer you very much, but I can point you to Christ. 
So please bear with me this morning as we look at this passage, and my words kind of jumble out in all different directions um, as we are trying to apply it to our lives today. And although I don't have three points, I did want to have something to kind of hang my thoughts on. Uh, And so to that end, along the way, we'll be thinking about uh, Superman and a crisis of vision, sea monsters and chaos, revolutionary timetables and expecting too little, burning bushes and the foundation of all life, labor contracts, a table and... Hope. So hopefully you can tell I've been having an interesting time with scripture these last few weeks. Now, I quite enjoy a good superhero film. I'm not like really fanatical about them, but I do enjoy a Marvel film or a Batman film. Uh, They're pretty harmless fun. There's some punch-ups, there's some action, there's usually some uh, quips and and witty dialogue. It's just a good, harmless fun. But the one superhero I've never been able to get to grips with is Superman. Um, And people who are really into this stuff, they tell me that Superman, there's a lot of kind of real depth about Superman. There's a lot of really interesting stuff going on. There's a lot of history there. But for me, I've just never been able to get to grips with it because of um, the old joke about Superman, which you're probably familiar with. And the old joke goes something like this. Who is this? Well, this is Superman. Well, it's Henry Cavill, the actor. But this is Superman, uh, chisel jaw, cape. Lycra, all that kind of stuff. But who is this? Can anyone tell me who this is? Clark Kent. Kent. Yes, it is Clark Kent, but it's not Clark Kent, is it? It is Superman wearing a pair of glasses. Like, that's all it is. Like, literally, it is just Superman wearing a pair of glasses. But no one can see it. No one can see it. Everyone's going, oh, Clark Kent, do you know who this Superman guy is? And he's saying, oh, goodness, I don't know. He must be pretty fantastic, but uh, no, I mean, I... No idea, no idea. And no one sees, and it's infuriating to me. (laughs) When we turn to the Gospel of John, we see a crisis of vision. People cannot see, they cannot understand who Jesus is, even when he is right in front of them. Over and over again, people see Jesus do miracles. John even calls them signs. They hear his teaching, and they don't get it. They don't see him for who he truly is. And John doesn't want this for us. That's the purpose of why he's written this book. Right at the end of the book, in chapter 20, verse 31, he explains, these are written, these signs, these stories are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. But that crisis of vision is exactly what's going on here in these two stories in this passage. In the first, quite literally, the disciples, Jesus' friends and followers, they don't see him. In the second, the people gather before him and they don't understand what he is saying. And they don't see who Jesus really is. Or maybe they can't see who Jesus really is. But at the heart of this is Jesus lifting the veil on who he is and how he relates to his world, and what that changes for everyone, including you today. But for now, we're going to talk about sea monsters. Bear with me. Um, Now, the Sea of Galilee, it isn't really a sea. Um, As John describes it, it's a lake. It's a big lake. Um, But one of the things about the Sea of Galilee is storms can blow up on it very, very quickly. Really violent, powerful storms. 
and it seems like something's going on like that here, or at least really heavy weather. Um, this incident is talked about by Matthew, another of Jesus' followers in his gospel, and Mark, one of the early Christians in his gospel. And when Matthew describes it in chapter 14, verse 24 of his gospel, he describes it, the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. So this is some really heavy weather. Now, I've been in heavy seas once before, um, but I was on a ship, though, a modern ship, um, and I actually had quite a good time. Uh, it felt very exciting, sort of going up and down. There were probably a few people on the boat who were feeling a bit seasick, but actually, generally, it was, it was fine. And I think for most of us, um, if we've been on a boat, it's just another mode of transport, another way of getting from A to B, and maybe it's a little bit dull, in fact. But I would say, actually, that's a very modern way of thinking about being on the sea. And in fact, it's actually something that comes out of a great deal of, of privilege and ignorance, really. For people who make their living on the seas, or for people who are forced to cross the seas, as many people are in our world, the sea is something very different. And in ancient times, in the, the times of uh, John's Gospel, the sea was considered very, very different. The sea is, of course, a beautiful place but it's also a totally alien place. It brings forth life, but human life cannot survive for long on the sea. It's a place of unpredictable storms and chaos. It is untamable. It is uncontrollable. Even somewhere like a desert, there are many deserts where humans can make homes. If you have enough resources, you can dig irrigation ditches, dig ditches and bring water in there. You can grow crops, you can uh, build settlements, you can build roads. A lot of mountains, as long as they're not too high and unscalable, people can build towns there, fortresses there. If there's grass, they can bring pasture there. People can survive in all kinds of places, but people cannot live for long on the sea. All you will ever be able to do is cross over the water on these tiny, fragile boats or ships. You can cross it, you might take food from it, but you will never know it. Not even partially. Even today, the stat, it's something like we, about 95% of the world's oceans are unexplored. And it may take everything from you. And frequently, for many people, it does. Scripture talks about Leviathan. And Leviathan is this great sea monster that represents the sea. But Leviathan is more than that as well. It's described more fully in Job chapter 41. Leviathan is the beast that makes the sea so dangerous and so terrifying. In verse 31, um, it, there's this whole passage describing it. But in verse 31, it says of Leviathan, it makes the depths churn like a boiling cauldron and stirs up the sea like a pot of ointment. That's in the book of Job. And this is God describing the sea and Leviathan. But Leviathan, it's more than a sea monster. It's actually a picture, not just of the sea, but of chaos itself. All those things in your life you have no control over. The things you never expect that just break you. And the point that God is making in the book of Job is no ordinary human can control Leviathan, can control the chaos of life. Only God can. And the Sea of Galilee is a 
microcosm of this worldview. On the Sea of Galilee, that represents all seas for these fishermen. That represents Leviathan. So when the disciples, they're straining away in the waves and the darkness, and Jesus is there, and they're terrified because they can't see who he is. And, and Matthew tells us in his description of this, they actually think that he's a ghost. They're not being stupid. They're not being silly. Below them are the bodies of countless fishermen this water has claimed before them. And they are struggling against the sea. They are struggling against chaos. And in the darkness and the rolling waves, they cannot make out who this figure is, who Leviathan cannot touch until he speaks. It is I. Don't be afraid. Now, of course, we, with our technology and our wisdom and our cleverness, we're beyond such things, aren't we? We fear no sea monsters. There is no chaos in our lives. Nothing in the last week in the news has been alarming or worrying to us, of course. <laughs> Nothing in the last two years has been troubling or disturbing. I mean, of course, our technology and our knowledge and our wisdom do not prevent any of this. They do not prevent the small and the great disasters of life that we have no control over. We are at sea. And sometimes that sea is calm and beautiful, and sometimes it is terrifying. But there is this man, this man walking on top of the water. And we're going to return to this in a moment. But for now, I want to skip ahead to this incredible time of discussion and debate the following day in the passage. Because for a little while in John's Gospel, there's been a revolution brewing. Uh, right at the end of the passage we discussed um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, James preached on it. Um, when Jesus fed these thousands of people... Um, Right at the end of the passage, it said in verse 14 and 15, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. And the next day, we, we read in this passage, these people, they find Jesus after a lot of effort, and they want to pick up right where they left off. Um, but by the end of this, maybe you're surprised these people feel really let down by Jesus. They feel really disappointed. They're grumbling. They're arguing. And the issue is, there is a set timetable for a revolution, especially this people's vision of what revolution would look like. There's an agenda. So first, you find the anointed one, um, the Christ or Messiah, God's chosen king, the prophet who is to come into the world. And a good indication that you found him is that he's teaching and he's doing miracles. Well, there's a tick, big tick, great. Then the first wrinkle comes because he then runs away and disappears. Okay, that's not part of the script, but maybe, maybe that's just a minor hiccup. Maybe this is some kind of test, maybe this is part of it, just missed the memo, fine, fine. Back on track now, they found Jesus again. So next, he's meant to start some kind of revolution. So he's going to be crowned king. Uh, he's going to kick out the Romans, the empire that's oppressing Israel. He's going to defeat all the oppressors. He's going to make God's people prosperous and wealthy and powerful. He's going to return right worship to the temple. And then he's going to set up a new eternal kingdom of God. And then he starts talking about bread. And they're really, really disappointed. 
Jesus is frustratingly not interested in sticking to any of our timetables. He has no interest in being used as a figurehead for a political or social project. He has no interest in being used for anything. He cares for us and every element of our lives. That's why I believe we can pray to him and know that he takes notice. It's why I believe he's at work in the world today. But he has no interest in being simply a means to an end. Whether that's personal prosperity or better relationships or social or political change, whatever it is, he loves us too much for that. Because, and here Jesus' response to these people is really interesting. His challenges to these people, his challenges to us this morning, his invitation. It's not to say that we expect too much of him. It's to say that we expect too little. And at the heart of this are these words. I am the bread of life. I am. Those two words, they get repeated over and over again through John's gospel. Over a thousand years earlier in the Sinai desert, a disgraced runaway Israelite who had once been adopted into the Egyptian royal family, a man named Moses, he encounters a burning bush. And from the bush, God speaks and asks Moses to return to Egypt and bring the Israelites out of slavery. And Moses, face to face with the God of his ancestors, he asks him, well, what do I say when people ask me, who sent me? What's your name? And God says, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent you. In scripture, names have meanings. They define things. But what name can encompass the one who created and upholds the universe? What name can describe the one who masters Leviathan and controls the chaos of the sea and the whole universe? It's not possible to name him. I am who I am. I am the bread of life. Sometimes we read things like that, and we read it as just being a way of saying, oh, okay, Jesus gives people life. Uh, like, so Jesus has got, I don't know, a shop or something, and he's got like loads of life in like banana boxes or sacks or whatever. And we go in and we say, okay, can I have some life, please? And he says, well, have you been good? And we say, well, sometimes. And then he says, great, here you go, have some life. The metaphor is broken down a little bit, but you get the kind of picture. That's the way we often think about Jesus and eternal life. But when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he's not saying he gives life. He's saying he is life. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. He is the word become flesh, the logos, the logic of the universe. He is the I am. He gives us himself. We are joined to life himself. And so our souls can never die. Earthly bread and earthly gifts will not last. Even miraculous ones, they will not last. Ultimately, our bodies will fail us. But if we are joined to the one who is the bread of life, those bodies will one day rise to beauty and immortality just as his did. And he will never, ever turn us away.
in verse 37 of this passage, he says, all those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. That's, that can be you and I today. And the people, they ask him in verse 28, well, what must we, we do to do the works God requires? And there's got to be a contract. There's got to be some kind of way, some kind of transaction going on here. I've got a contract for work. The contract says, well, I will work X number of hours, and there's certain things I will and won't do as part of that, and in return, they're going to give me money. And uh, so far, it's been very agreeable for everyone. The system works. It's great. Um, what are the terms of the contract with God? How many good deeds do I need to do to outweigh the bad deeds that I do? How many times do I need to pray? Do I need to dress a certain way? Do I need to eat a certain way? What does God require? Well, Jesus says this. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. It's gift. It's all undeserved gift. It's grace. There's nothing you need to pay, nothing you can pay. Christ, the I am, the bread of life, freely offers himself to all who will accept him, all who will believe. If I offer you a gift, then you can refuse it. Uh, you can say, I don't believe Matt's actually got a gift for me. Uh, Matt's actually quite a shady guy. I'm not interested. I don't believe I'll like it. No, I don't believe. You can refuse it. But to accept it, you don't need to do anything. All you need to do is say, yes. Jesus does not demand a contract. Instead, he offers a table. He says this in verse 54. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. This is why we do communion. This is why we have the bread and the cup. We don't teach that this is the physical body and blood of Christ, but on the cross he gave his body and his blood to save us from sin and death, to save the world that he made. And now in his resurrection life at his table, when we come in faith that we will meet him, he is here. And we will not just be sustained by physical food and drink, but by the bread of life as we accept him in faith. I am convinced that communion is not an empty ritual. It's not an optional extra. It is a table set for us by our Savior who says, come and meet with him and be changed. Come and meet with him and have your sins forgiven. Come and meet with life himself. And the great power of this meal is that it's physical. It's grounding. It's got very little to do with the ups and downs of what's happening in here. Even when you cannot see him, even when you cannot feel him, or anything much, actually, even when you can't feel anything much, you can still come to his table and receive him. And that's good news because to many of us, we are like the disciples at the start of this passage. We are on a boat at sea. And the waves are high and everything is dark. And Leviathan is upon us in all its chaos. And we cannot see Jesus. 
Sometimes that's not it. Sometimes you get that bad news, you get that hardship, and through it all, Christ is shining like a beacon. And that is wonderful, those moments. But sometimes you can barely see beyond the next wave before it slams into you. And I think sometimes what gets sort of accidentally taught and accidentally caught is that if you can't see Christ, if you're not experiencing him, if you're not rejoicing in his presence, then that's a faith problem. It's a you problem. And you are somehow cut off until it can be fixed. And I don't think that's the case. The hope of the good news of Jesus Christ is not if you believe enough you will get a powerful feeling in your heart of Jesus' love and everything will feel okay. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes the Holy Spirit just enters in and just smacks right into our lives and just everything is illuminated. Everything glows. Everything is wonderful. Everything is powerful as we feel God's presence. But that's not our hope. Our hope is that for all who put their trust in Jesus... Even when you cannot see him, even when all is dark and chaos, even when you feel totally alone, he will never leave or forsake you. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. You are still invited to this table. He has entered into our chaos. He knows it well. Leviathan has bitten his heel, but he has crushed its head and he has risen victorious. He walks across the water close to you, and he says through the living scripture, even if you cannot hear the words over the wind, it is I. Don't be afraid. His gift of salvation from sin and death is not dependent on our feelings, circumstances, even the strength of our faith. It is grace. It is all gift. Do you know that's what I've clung to? these last few years. Some of you, you know these last few years, they've not been a great time. They've, well, that's not controversial. I think for most of us, these last few years, they've not been a great time, have they? We sing wonderful songs here at the Oak. We sing songs of joy and strength and confidence in our Lord. Many Sundays, I find them hard to sing. And that's okay. That's okay. But the best thing I have found... When I do do this, I don't always do this, but the best thing I have found in those situations is when I open the scriptures. And usually I turn to the Psalms, mostly, um, or John's Gospel, as it happens. I love this book. I love the way I meet Jesus in these pages. But I've always had a love for the eighth chapter of Romans. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons... Neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in those moments I am reminded that my salvation and all the promises of God do not rest in my feelings, my circumstances or even the strength of my faith. They rest in the yes and amen of my saviour, Jesus. This man who is alive today, who is himself life, and who walks beside me even in the darkness. This morning, I have nothing to offer you. I have no plan to fix your life or my life 
or anyone's life. This church, it is a beautiful community, but our words and our good and advice and our help on their own are just like regular bread. They might be all right, they might sustain or help for a moment, and that's not nothing. That is a gift from God. But if that's all we're in this place, at this gathering to look for, then we are asking for far too little. I have nothing to offer you this morning, but I can point you to Christ. And perhaps we can come together to his table. And his promise is he will meet us here. And he will give us the bread of life. He will give us himself. We are going to take some time now to respond around the Lord's table. Um, I'm going to encourage you uh, in a moment to come forward in in groups. Please be looking out for each other. Um, This isn't a sort of time for your own little little tight-knit group of friends or family. This is a time for us together as a church to serve one another. I encourage you to come forward, take the cup and the bread, sit together, confess your sins to God, and know that through Christ they can be forgiven. Pray for one another, encourage one another, search for what the Holy Spirit is saying to you through this table as we meet with our Saviour, Jesus. And then Faye is going to come uh, and lead us as we respond. Um, The children are going to be downstairs till about 10 past 12. We have lots of time for response. And I'd really encourage you to make the most of that, to spend this time meeting with your saviour, Jesus, who loves you. And now let me read again from scripture, Jesus' promise. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died. But whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Let's come and eat and drink and rejoice together.